Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast where a couple pastor scholars dig into the written word of God and explore how we might offer it to others uh, in preaching and teaching and just for our own uh, personal edification. I'm your host, John Drury. I teach systematic theology and spiritual formation for Wesley Seminary at Indiana Wesleyan University. My guest this week is Scott Donahue Martins. Scott is a pastor at a church plant. He's on a team, a church planting team in Boston, uh, Massachusetts, and he's also a doctoral student in homiletics at uh, Boston University. And he's a great preacher and a relatively new friend of mine and a great theorist and thinker about preaching. I learn a ton from him whenever we talk about texts, uh, whenever we talk about uh, preaching and its practice and the interpretation uh, work between the two. So I hope that you'll enjoy learning from Scott as much as I do. Our text this week is Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. So Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Be sure to share and subscribe to the podcast and rate and review us when you get a chance. And with that said, enjoy the show. Okay, let's jump in. Our usual custom is to have someone read it and the other person to say a word of prayer. Would you rather read or pray? Your call. I would love to read. Okay, you read. I'll pray. All right. Our text is Luke 18, 9 through 14. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we ask now, even as we begin before saying anything or swapping any ideas. I sense there's already an application of this parable um, as we see two men praying. And now on this recording, we have two men praying. So Lord, I ask that you would grant us the grace to pray in a manner appropriate to our station as creatures, as sinners, and as children. And so we say, God, be merciful to us. God, be merciful to us sinners. Grant us the mercy that what we say and do this hour would not displease you, but be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We ask this as always, begging for your spirit's power at work in us as we interpret the written word And as always, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, the Incarnate Word. In that power and in that name, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks again, Scott, for uh, meeting up to to talk through this, meeting up uh, at a distance, remotely, giving away the secrets. Scott's all the way in uh, Boston, right? I am. Glad to be here. Thanks so much for the invite. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, what what jumps out at you just right away, at, freshly, as you encounter this text? What are just a few of your observations? And if these these don't have to go anywhere, uh, we'll see how they bear fruit. Just cast the seed widely. <laughs> of, of course, of course. I think the first thing that always jumps out to me when I read this text is how quick I want to be to say, "Oh, I'm glad I'm not like the Pharisee." <laughs> 
And then the text completely indicts me because I've done exactly what the text is saying not to do. And in that way, the parable has drawn me into its world, which is one of, I think, the beautiful things about the parables. But some of the other thoughts in the actual text itself, I think the text does a really interesting job of playing with the themes between works and righteousness, and then also trust in God or trust in man. Hmm. And the way that they get played out for who gets declared righteous. And even actually the way that the two men pray is really interesting because the Pharisee is there and he gives this opening line of quote unquote, thanks to God. (laughs) And and then he's just talking about himself the whole time, Hmm. almost in a sense that God doesn't already know this guy's resume and this guy's (laughs) resume is clearly, (sighs) clearly decked out. And, you know, Along my theological education, someone once told me that the Pharisees are the people who you'd want to live next to. (laughs) You'd want them as your neighbor because, you know, they're always going to mow their lawn. They're never going to transgress on your property. That the Pharisees were really good people. And this text displays that. And the tax collector is probably not who you want your neighbor to be. And so, in a sense, we have to take our, our Jesus eyes off as we talk about Pharisees and tax collectors and everything that comes with them Mm. as we talk and think about this passage. But you see the the tax collector in his prayer, he genuinely asks God for something. He knows Mm. that he can't do it on his own, that his resume is not a righteous resume, but he's still willing to go to the temple. He's still Mm. to pray. And he's actually willing to say, God, I need something that I can't do on my own. I need you to help me. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. The, the, the different attitude uh, of each of them. That's striking. The, uh, this is an observation about what you said, but it ends up being an observation about the text too, is you mentioned that he's still willing to go to the temple, even though, probably would have had to engage in some kind of purification ritual because as a tax collector, he would have been in contact with Gentiles, which is one of the many reasons why you wouldn't want him as a neighbor is the disgrace and, and, and the uh, even kind of pollution as it were of, of this kind of uh, sort of Gentile dealer. I'm guessing that that's part of the tax collector issue, right? It's not just the financial extortion for yeah. which they were known, but also the, the, the contact with Gentiles would just be part of the job, I assume. Yeah, of course. Um, so, so the fact that you pointed out that he still chooses to go to the temple, and I've always tended to see this story as just a kind of spectrum of kind of a false boldness on one extreme to the humility uh, or, you know, boldness, pride, and humility on the other. Rightly so, given the one-liner in a 14B, right? Of course. Humbles so and exalts. But, and this is always, uh, well, that's an excursus I'll come back to later, but... uh it's there's also in what you pointed out and in the context, this would be very natural to see without even needing to be pointed out. There's not the false humility of not even going to the temple at all. And so there's this, there's this true humility that is this mean between extremes. Uh, Listeners, this podcast are tired of me doing this virtue analysis with stuff, but I I find it helpful, uh, especially because it's not our natural way of thinking in the modern world in our kind of, kind of a, pseudo Kantian ways of always thinking in terms of right or wrong and not always knowing how to do virtue reflection. But the, the, the true humility is between the extremes of a kind of self-exaltation and a kind of self-abnegation that is, that just withdraws from the presence of God completely, right? He's yeah. got it right in the middle. He comes before, there is actually a boldness hidden oh, yeah. in humility here, right? It's this bold humility that says that dares to show up at the temple at all. And then in that context, then within that boldness of coming before the throne of grace, he humbles himself. And I, I, and I don't think I saw it that way until you pointed out that little phrase that you just said, but he still comes to the temple. Right? <laughs> yeah. He, he doesn't say, oh, I have to be righteous before I get to the temple. He says, right, which you would know, be just another kind of pride, right? Exactly. Even, if, even if it's more self-aware of its sinfulness. Exactly. And that's why I love that you pointed out that last line about humility, but I also think it's got to be attached to that first line, trust, 
And we tend to think, ah. we tend to think trust, oh, the Pharisee, but also the fact that he comes to the temple means that this tax collector trusted that that's where he's going to meet God and that that's where he can have an encounter that leads him potentially on a path to righteousness. And so they're both trusting in two different areas. Oh, that's really good. That's really good. So you have the, and, and so this gets into some good textual analysis. So let's, let's take a break and come back focusing on, and let's get in the weeds a little bit about how Luke does parables, right? You've got the parable and then you've got these intro and outro and uh, let's come back to that and really zoom in on that and, and see where it takes us. Sound good? Sounds great. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with uh, Scott Donahue-Martins, and we are looking at Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. And right before the break, you went back to the theme of trust at the beginning and how that's relevant for how we interpret humility and vice versa. And that got me immediately wanting to sort of a geek out question. How long we spend on this is kind of up to, up to you, but uh, well, it's up to me a little bit, but mostly up to you. So, you know, in terms of like parables, because you, you mentioned even like preaching on parables and we'll get there soon, but just even, even interpreting parables, one of the things that is hard for me to, to keep in mind is the layers of a parable, right? So you, you've got, you know, maybe verse 10 through 14 or even just through 13, you could see that as just a kind of a story, right? Yeah. It may go back to uh, Jesus, although it's probably already been massaged you know, before it's written down by Luke or by someone else prior to Luke. And then you get the final line, 14a, which, you know, I would tell you that I tell you this man went down to his house justified rather than the other might also be part of the original parable, or it might be now the commentary on the parable. And then the final line, 14b, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, humbled himself will be exalted because this, this exact phrase appears in other places in Luke and in the other gospels. You know, this, this is, a, is kind of a saying yeah. that may or may not, you know, be exclusively associated with the parable. And then, so all those are just layers, all of which may be pre-Luke. But then nine is so clearly Luke talking, right? He, he loves to take story, you know, and you know this because when there's occasionally a parable that appears in Matthew as well, he'll often set a parable, just like Matthew collects parables often. You know, there's a bunch of those parables in 13, I think, of Matthew. Luke keeps them spread out, but often will introduce these little contextual remarks, right? Yeah. I, I'm studying another one right now, and, and he's got this little, you know, it, I'll just say it. It's, it's from later in 19 when, you know, as they were coming close to Jerusalem, there were people thinking the kingdom was going to come back immediately. And so he told them this parable. Okay, that really affects yep. your interpretation of the parable because Luke has located it in a very specific context with a specific audience. Absolutely. Um, and, and again, I'm bringing all this up, not just to geek out on these layers, but also because it becomes interpretively relevant, as you pointed out in the first section before our break, that he talks about trust here, this putting faith in oneself and one's righteousness, and that somehow connecting to despising of others, yeah. and that despising looking down on others is connected, obviously, to humiliation and exaltation in the final line. So yeah. clearly, like Luke wants to to direct this and make sure we don't miss the meaning. I don't know. I don't know if you have any thoughts about it. I know I just went off on a sort of rant, but for those who maybe have forgotten these things from back in seminary or never really paid attention to layers, it's kind of nice to just review that kind of layer stuff in parables, especially with Luke's particular way of going about it. Absolutely. And sometimes we have to ask ourselves whether a particular gospel account with their writer or their layers if the influence that they're putting onto the parable may be offering us, maybe leading us astray in some ways, or leading astray may be too strong, but it may be precluding us from seeing certain yeah. things. So that's one of the things I love about the layers and that language with parables. Each layer offers certain things that we can see, but it also precludes others. And so when you come at the parable from a different layer, you're not necessarily throwing away everything from another layer, but you're asking yourself, what does this layer show me that the other one didn't? And also, what does it preclude? What does it make harder to see? And particularly in this parable, along with many of these others on the journey to Jerusalem, you're seeing the mixing of a vertical axis with a horizontal one, where 
the the Pharisee is very ah. clearly so good on that horizontal axis and doing everything he should with his neighbors. But there's a sense in which you get the impression that he's not doing it from a spiritual perspective, but more from a sense of obligation. And that's a harsh reading of the Pharisees because many of them, you know, they are trying to be spiritually good people. But then you also get the sense in which this tax collector, and he's probably awful on the horizontal <laughs> level. People probably do not like this person yeah. because he cheats, he steals. He might be the thief that the Pharisee says, thank you that I'm not like him. Hmm. But yet when he goes to the temple with that humility, there's a sense in which he gets that vertical level connected. And it's certainly not an either or. That's not Luke's message at all. And this is also a tendency that we have to avoid with parables is to completely valorize one person and then demonize another. Parables are more often nuanced. Yeah. And it's in the degrees of nuance that you can really find good meaning. Yeah, that's really helpful. And bringing in the horizontal vertical, I, w- I want to come back to that. I wanted to link it to the traditioning process, the layers of traditioning process that you connected it to and just camp on that for a moment. Because I think I'm hearing you say that like in the different layers of that traditioning process, the vertical versus the horizontal emphasis might be more obvious and more obscured in other cases. Were you saying that or did I mishear you? No, absolutely. Uh, okay. That's exactly it. And, and even depending to connect it further back to your first point about let's look at what's at the beginning and let's look at what's at the end is sometimes that influences us really positively so that we can see certain things, but also sometimes that may preclude us. It may obscure other things. And so I'm giving the listeners permission to right. play to play with a parable, to play with the meaning, and to just try different things out, see where interpretations take you. Yeah, and, and the, the playfulness at, at the hermeneutical level is not to say, and I, and I liked when you switched your language to what, what it precludes, what it obscures, and what it, what it you know, reveals, right? Or all revealing is a kind of concealing and vice versa, right? So, you know, to, to take a perspective on something, you know, if you're looking at an object, you know, I'm, I'm looking out the window here, I've got this tree and the tree that is right in front of me does obscure the view of the two trees behind it. It just does, right? That doesn't mean I'm not seeing those other trees. In fact, there might be things I'm seeing about those trees yeah. uh, because of the contrast, because of the, the obscuring. So the obscuring is also a revealing and vice versa. And yet, if I were to go outside from another angle, that wouldn't suddenly become then the true one. So I, I, I say this not uh, exclusively out of anxiety, although some of it's that. So I'll just name my anxiety about hearers who might be like, oh, what, what do they think the real truth is or something? What, I, what I'm actually trying to do the opposite of that is to try to say what I'm not going to say is, well, let's try to figure out exactly what the original parable might have been in its context. Because actually Luke is demonstrating for us that as these parables are handed on over decades the the desire to make clear how they apply and their meaning is is so this line at the beginning verse 9 that Jesus told this to certain kinds of people is at least i think in Luke's intention precisely to try to help us capture yeah. at least what he senses the the parable um was and is doing in a way that may become obscure to us if it didn't have an introduction so ironically it might help yeah. us actually see what's really there but to, but all seeing is a kind of unseeing and vice, you know, so, and, and I like how you said that so that so hermeneutically there's the freedom to play yeah. with the different layers. And occasionally I do that. I'll sometimes just bracket out in my mind. How would I take this parable without this introduction or conclusion? Right. Yeah. Not because that's the truer parable or some, you know, uh, sort of false uh, notion of some sort of, I know better than Luke, but rather, to take Luke's own cue of really trying to understand the material as he's presenting it to us and then bring those back in. So then I can see the contrast. And then there's not a bright line, of course, between hermeneutics and homiletics, which I'm sure would make you delighted for me to say that, but because some of it's then homiletical question. Okay. I played with these six different ways of reading, but what do my people need to hear? Do you know what I mean? Like they might need to hear an emphasis that's maybe slightly subterranean in Luke's version here but that needs to be lifted out. I know, I know we're doing meta stuff here, but I think that's valuable because some of these principles apply across the board to Luke 
uh, interpretation to parable interpretation and to just interpretation in general. <laughs> Absolutely. No surprise to you. I'm going to do a Rikorian thing right here and say that often I think interpretation is more about weeding out bad interpretation <laughs> than it is about finding that one particular quote unquote right or divinely inspired interpretation. And I think case in point, this, this parable, which talks about humility, if we come at it from a more feminist or, or womanist type of hermeneutic, it might challenge an interpretation that says that reduces this parable to humility because mm. Often in those type of thinking and in that type of theology, people need to be lifted up a little more. There, there needs to be a sense of self and identity that has often been negated in those type of circles. And so it's, it's definitely not clear cut. And you're absolutely right that the, the needs of the audience or the needs of the congregation directly impact how the preacher will interpret this passage with the Holy Spirit. Yeah, actually that mentioning those the pushback on certain on certain kinds of humility links back to that great observation you made earlier about not the false humility of just avoidance, right? But the boldness, a bold humility, right? Yeah. That's a picture that I don't think I'm always seeing in a story like this because you just see the two characters and you tend to think of them as extremes rather than, like you said, having a little more nuance to see the nearness of them. What do they have in common? Two men went up to the temple to pray. That's that shared event, right? Yeah. And then the final end, in terms of them going back down to their house, one's justified and one's not. Again, contrast, but also the commonality, they both are seeking to be justified. Yeah. They, they do desire uh, to be vindicated before God. And it's, it's really not, even though the Pharisee's trusting in his own righteousness, as it were, he's trusting in it in order to present it to God that God would accept it. It's not like just an absolute, I mean, you know, some sort of like, deist notion that you know his yeah. righteousness consists in himself of course yeah. the pharisee knows that it is god that justifies you know he's um, not he's not being good for bad reasons yeah yeah i think he actually genuinely does desire god to be pleased with his work which is why i think luke's so this is the horizontal vertical business that i said i wanted to come back to the opening line very important there's two parts yeah he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves concerning their own righteousness or trusted their own righteousness is translation options there. And we're despising toward the rest. Yeah. Others yeah. is an unfortunate, but standard translation. It's the rest, right? Everybody else basically. <laughs> yeah. um, but plural. So it's not just me against the world, but like those of us who are righteous and then everybody else who's not, and we're looking down on them or despising them. And so the horizontal and the vertical dimensions are linked in verse nine, which maybe you were pointing out and I just d missed it. But I wonder if like the whole prayer of the Pharisee, when we're looking at the vertical dimension, the failure of the Pharisee is to be consumed with the horizontal and his own yeah. righteousness is the second. It's all, it's all second table of the law as it were, right? It's all extortioners, unjust adulterers, but yeah. It's precisely his obsession on the horizontal that's making him look down at others. And you wonder if all you had to do was drop tax collector from the prayer and it's not as bad, right? It's the fact that he's specifically looking around in the temple at who else is there and lifting himself up above them. I mean, that's just like, hey man, you've had your reward. If yeah. that's what you want, okay, you're better than, God's like, yep, you're better than tax collector. Good for flipping you, right? It's yeah. like, yes, of course you are, right? But yeah. And, and here's the thing, and exactly in what you're saying, they have physically walked up to the temple. The text uh, makes this clear. They go up to the temple, yes. they come down. There's yes. already the sense that vertically, he's oh. missing that he's vertically come up to where he's supposed to meet God because he's too busy seeing everyone else and comparing himself to those people rather than recognizing that he is entering into the presence of God. Oh, that's so good because, oh yeah, and 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 oh 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 oh, that's so 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 good, right? Is to say because it comes back to that earlier inside of yours about the lack of a false humility in the tax collector. He has exalted himself in the appropriate manner, namely, he has come up to meet with God, right? Yeah. No more, no less, right? That's the right amount, the proper amount of 
self-exaltation is drawing near to the throne. You draw near to God, he draws near to you, but precisely the act of drawing near is meant to humble you to say, I do not deserve to be in this place, and yet I am, so please God be merciful to me. And like you said, he's so caught up in the relative righteousness. I know you said vertical horizontal. I'm just going to flip it to like relative righteousness. Yeah. Because he is, relatively speaking, more righteous than the tax collector. Jesus actually does not contest that um, in a certain sense. It's not, oh, he should really realize how much of a sinner he is deep in his heart. I don't think that's Jesus' point. (laughs) It's like, yeah, relatively speaking, you are righteous, but you should know better that the, the real question is the absolute righteousness of God and the complete uh, standing before God in receptivity to God's righteousness, right? That's, that's the real relation that matters, which is what you're getting at with horizontal vertical. I just want to, thought I'd introduce absolute relative just to play yeah. with it. But. Absolutely. And I think what it also illustrates is the purpose of prayer. And the purpose of prayer is for us to receive from God, God's blessings, God's forgiveness, God's direction, not for us to show our resume to God. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and that, of course, that raises a, a deep question, which maybe moves us even into, into preaching, but we'll just decide if we want to go there or not. But I do find this text troubling in one important way when you, when you mentioned the purpose of prayer. Yeah. Is what is the appropriate approach to gratitude? Because grat- one of the warnings here that I receive often is because explicit gratitude, even listing things I'm thankful for, has been such a transformative element in my own prayer life. And I see here the danger of that, how that can be a subtle form of resume self-exaltation before God. Although gratitude can be such a, you know, obviously Jesus teaches on gratitude positively in other places. And, and gratitude is obviously an act of humility. True gratitude is true humility, yeah. right? Thank you, God. But here there's, a, there's something off in the gratitude here that I think is really important that I haven't fully sorted out even in my own heart, let alone in the text. Yeah. I'm not sure that I can solve it for you today, <laughs> but I would like to say I want that, to be justified. <laughs> that if, if there's no part of the parable that doesn't strike you as uh, odd or compelling, that you maybe need to reread the parable. But yeah. Moving forward, one thing, one issue that I have with the quote unquote gratitude that is offered, and we've talked about the comparative nature of it previously, so I'd highlight that. But he is thanking God that he's not like other people. And then he says, thieves, rogues, adulterers, all other people. So he's not saying, God, I thank you that you have given me the ability or the capacity to tithe all that I have, uh, you know, a 10th of all that I have, or God, I thank you that you've protected me. It's just, again, all this comparative and even to specific people. So he could have said, God, I thank you that I don't steal. But instead he says, God, I thank you. I am not a thief, (laughs) a specific (laughs) person. That's a good insight. Not thank you, God, for protecting me from falling into thievery. Yeah. But rather, man, I'm so glad I'm not a thief, right? Yeah. So he's, he's, he's linked uh, sin, uh, lodged it into the identity of other people. And so he's lodged righteousness into his own identity. Absolutely. And so self-exaltation is just the natural consequence of that confusion. Yeah. Oh, I mean, that's really good. He's standing by himself for a reason. And <laughs> I think it's probably twofold. I think it's one that he chooses to go and stand by himself. But then also that doesn't preclude others from potentially going and standing by him, but that also doesn't happen, which I think is significant. Huh? Oh yeah. And I assume by contrast, the tax collector who's standing far off and I'm imagining this into the text, but I imagine that there are other people near the tax collector. And so there's a sense in which he is at least with other people. And even if the other people are looking at him ill favorably because he's a tax collector, they might still be willing to stand by him in relationship to him where they're not willing to go up to where the Pharisee is. Yeah, at least on his side, he's, he's obviously willing to yeah. welcome those who, whether they choose to or not, is another question. But whereas right. the Pharisee's entire behavior 
um, signals a separation from the community. Although you could almost say, because it's standing by himself versus standing far away or at a distance. You could almost see them, and it's just a thought, playing with that and pushing it a little, that there's kind of a separation from the community in both directions happening here. But it's two very different kinds of, let, let me put it this way, and this gets into the prayer question. It's discerning between two different kinds of solitude, right? There's the solitude that says, I can't, you know, I can't get anything done. I can't get close to God with all these sinners around me, right? So I'm going up to the mountain away from them. And that's a dangerous kind of solitude to think that God is somehow there and not in community. Yeah. And that it has, it's, it's because of my own incapacity for attentiveness that it's hard for me to, to encounter God without solitude versus the, the tax collector who's willing to receive the shame of the community to say, if the community doesn't want me, you know, I'm willing to bear that, but I know that God, you know, is still with me even when I'm apart, but the desire is to be with the tax collector doesn't want, he would, he probably would prefer like Zacchaeus a chapter later, right. To be restored to fellowship with his neighbors and friends, right. That's what he would want. So there's an openness, basically what I'm trying to say, again, reading in a lot, but that's okay. Uh, just the key is when we know we, when we're doing it. The openness to, is solitude being practiced with an openness to community or as an act of rejection to community, right? And the latter is false solitude. That's the thought. And I absolutely think it's something that Christian, evangelical, and particularly holiness evangelicals that we need to think about in this time. Yeah, as if my holiness comes from not being polluted (laughs) by others. Yeah. No, I think that's good. I think that's good. Well, this has been some great interpreting, and I've I've learned a lot from you, and I'm I'm really enjoying this. Let's take a quick break and break. No, take a quick break and come back uh, and do some sermon starters. Sounds great. We're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Scott Donahue Martins, and we are studying Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. The famous Pharisee and the tax collector, two men who went up to pray. Thanks so much for uh, interpreting so far. It's been fun. Let's uh, let's jump into some sermon starters. Uh, how would we want to get this cooking uh, for ourselves if we were preaching it or for our listeners, some ideas to help them uh, move forward in their in their sermon and teaching prep? Absolutely. First, a cautionary tale about when you're reading the text from experience. I set out one Sunday morning reading this text, and when I got to the Pharisee saying that he was thankful that he wasn't like this tax collector, I inadvertently pointed toward a parishioner and just kind of getting into the moment. <laughs> so you'll want to be careful if you really get into reading this text not to point towards specific congregants when you read certain things, but uh, (laughs) that's a great story. Although it makes me wonder if when you're going to act it out, if, especially if you're mic'd properly uh, as opposed to at a podium to actually like, if you were going to stage it, you'd want to actually turn your back on the audience. Uh, Yeah. And then that would help. Then you could actually kind of point vaguely to, as if there's someone else up there, you know? Absolutely. Um, That's a funny story though. (laughs) Yeah, I apologize profusely after. Did Unfortunately, work, did they, they work for the IRS? Were they uh, <laughs> I wish. Well, next time you tell that story, you should change it to say, and it turns out they worked for the IRS. <laughs> there we go. No, it would be false. It would be a better story. Yeah. <laughs> I do not I, encourage lying. Sorry, just kidding. I absolutely love preaching the parables, and this will be a little meta, but I love to do oh, it. Oh, please. And I love to bring in a homiletician, Fred Craddock, who was really revolutionary for the field of preaching. And one of the things that he said that preaching can be, doesn't say it has to be, but that preaching can be recreating your own experience with the text. Hmm. And this is where the conversation we had about layers is really important, because I think Uh. a lot of times a preacher will come to a parable And they'll only preach that final layer that they get to or one particular layer. And they think, well, that doesn't quite fit my one overall interpretation or it doesn't fit 
the denouement that I'm leading up to. So I'm just going to push it off to the side. And there's a lot of good wisdom in that. But in recreating our own experience of trying to interpret and trying to exegete the passage, we're inviting the congregation in to the interpretive process. We're modeling what good interpretation looks like. And we're also inviting them to maybe even disagree with us, to have the person say, actually, I think that layer right now speaks more meaningful to my life. And you create a space for the Holy Spirit to talk to that particular person in that space. And so it brings up a second idea from David Buttrick, this idea of preaching a contrapuntal. And so a contrapuntal is just a counterpoint. And so preaching a contrapuntal would be preaching like a half truth or even Uh something that goes against your overall interpretation. And you don't do it to be tricky. You don't do it to be mean, but you do it to draw the listeners in. This This is what I think the parables are about. They're about drawing us in and then in some ways undercutting the expectation. And so often our congregants are so used to the parables that that parabolic power is often lost. Uh, And so preaching a contrapuntal, preaching through your experience can invite these parables to still have a lot of their power. So those are really good meta uh, homiletical points and sorry to cut you off just real quick. I, for starters, those are, both really good homiletical principles in general. I think I'm hearing you say they're especially relevant for preaching parables, which excites me because I will say that unlike yourself, I find preaching on parables very difficult. Mm. I I really, really struggle with it for reasons. We don't have to get into those unless we want to, but so I say that just to humble myself before you and say, help me, help me learn how to preach on parables. So I will play the role of the listener to podcast, let's all say, we don't know how to do this. Like, how would yeah. you apply those? Maybe you had another one you were going to mention, but at least starting with those two principles, how might you apply that specifically in sermon prep with, uh, with, with this passage? Absolutely. So one of the reasons I love parables is because it allows for quick character identification. So mm. parables are the short, succinct, often stories that have, as you mentioned earlier, two contrasting characters. And so what I might do is to actually really play into that contrast and try to get my characters, my congregants, not my characters, (laughs) to get the congregation to really identify with one character or the other. And in this one, you then, you just, you play with it a little bit. So you try to show them how good of a guy the Pharisee really would have been. And how much you really would want to live right next to a Pharisee. And so your contrapuntal, your degrees of inviting them into your experience of interpreting the text allows you then to have more shades of meaning. So to, to say it more succinctly, if you start out with a strong character identification where it's more cut and dry that's almost your contrapuntal, that it's just a simple story and that you can very easily derive a quick meaning from it. And then you make it more complex through that means. Yeah, no, I see. So it sounds like the character identification strategies through various kind of picture painting narratives and those kinds of things are a way to actually really apply both these principles at once, right? Because in some sense, I mean, you could even say it like, you know, I mean, I feel like the shape of our conversation today has already had much of the shape of what a sermon could be yeah. on a parable. Part of, part of why I struggle preaching on parables is, is it's preaching on preaching. It's Jesus, and he's better than me at this. It's like really hard to like, you yeah. know what I mean? Like occasionally I kind of feel, no insult, beloved St. Paul, but sometimes I feel like I can make his point a little clearer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know that's so arrogant, but you know what I mean? Like you can have that feeling as you're studying, like, here's how I would put this in a way that would make sense for my people. It's saying my, I can get it to my people. Whereas like the parables have this kind of power that it's kind of like, I kind of just want to get out of the way. So how do you get out of the way that still takes responsibility for the preaching task? And you're giving us a path by saying, lead with the fact that I'm a student of the text first, not the teacher, not the one with the authority, 
but yeah. the one sitting at the feet of Jesus. Yeah. And when you said right out of the gate, like you could almost start right there, like just right at the beginning of our conversation today, you mentioned how, how I'm so glad that I'm not like this Pharisee. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then, oh no, <laughs> right? like, yeah. And then go through the process of saying, and so I took some time to get to know this man, you know, and maybe even name, give him a name and, yeah. and don't tell the story of the, you could actually tell the story of his everyday life down in the city and the kind of person he was and how he was seen and respected and really add that nuance that you mentioned. Yeah, yeah. you're exactly right. And you pointed out exactly what I meant. If, if I were to preach this parable in a congregation, I would set up the Pharisee, not necessarily as, as the bad guy, um, but saying that in our interpretation, in our, in my interpretation of the parable, I often thank, you know, God that I'm not like the Pharisee, mm-hmm. which is exactly doing what the parable is telling us not to. And in, so in that way, it's meta, but it's also just allowing the text to speak as it might have spoken to the original audience. Yeah. It occurs to me now, even that, that, uh, not to get too in the weeds of an outline, but I sometimes like to pitch an outline to our listeners, you know, cause I'm a structure guy. So I try to take the ideas of my guests and turn it into like a little, so I could imagine a, you know, maybe three, four section move sermon where you would kind of paint the store picture of the Pharisee, his regular life, and then, and get them all the way up to heading up to the temple and then pause the story and switch meanwhile and kind of paint a picture of the tax collector yeah. as basically someone you would not want to have as your neighbor, right? That, to, to play up that neighborliness problem and then bring, and then actually narrate the parable and maybe even just internalize slash memorize the passage. Yeah. Just once you've set it up, then, then at the kind of turning climax in the middle of the sermon, before you get to the last uh, three or four moves, just narrate the parable after yeah. you've built up the characters, right? And then, then you're letting, you're actually letting people hear it afresh, right? Yeah. And that's kind of following your first point and also the, the second point too of the, the contrast between the two. And then if you wanted, and this would actually have a nice Lowry loop to it of a kind of, you know, turning point. And then you actually could tell the story after, yeah. right? Of them going down. And so then ironically, this coming through the exegetical study, the text that you actually, you might not end up commenting directly on the passage itself. You just kind of let Jesus parable do its own work right in the middle of the sermon. Yeah. But, but you've built up and it would be really key to not read it, but to actually memorize it or at least internalize it so that you can maintain eye contact. And instead of it being like, no, we're going to read the passage, right. But really like build up to it, do the story without the intro, maybe in conclusion. Um, and maybe without 14, then tell the going down story because you could then yeah. maybe add 14, you know, and even add nine and 14 kind of at the end, you could actually then um, explore, tell the story of their life after as a kind of third move, both of them, and maybe a final move, some stories of our own life and, you know, something like that. I'm just making this up as I go, but is this making some kind of sense? It is. And what I'm hearing is maybe even a difference in our preaching styles. Now, I haven't heard ah. you preach, but I tend to be an inductive preacher. And I like to have the passages recreate the experience. And that's why I love the parables, because I think similar to Lowry's root, recreating the experience of the gospel is very easy in parables. However, deductive preaching, that's preaching that seeks to have a universal point and then apply it to all situations. I think that type of preaching is very hard with parables. And I wonder if you're more inclined to be a deductive preacher than an inductive, but that's a whole nother conversation for us on another day. Nah, I I mean, we can pause on it less about you and I and more about our listeners. Yeah. Because some of it is being aware of that you know, where you're, see, I don't know if I'm a, I I don't know if I'm an inductive preacher or deductive preacher, but I, but I do know that I have, uh, I know I'm a, uh, inclined towards deduction as a person. So often my preaching is working against that. 
And there's a question whether that's actually healthy for me as a preacher, like learning to just be okay with what I'm good at. And it's certainly the case that my tendency towards, if by deduction, and it's very, I liked the way you described that, by the way, like the notion of coming to kind of a central idea and then offering it to your people as relevant to their various circumstances. Um, if that's what you mean by deductive preaching, that's interesting. You're not descri- you're describing it as not primarily f- a f- uh, form in the sense of the genre right. of the preaching, but form in the sense of the, the logical structure. Yep. Right. So in fact, it sounds to me like you could actually be an inductive preacher on the surface. Cause I do a lot of that. Like I, that, that principle from, from Craddock about kind of inviting people into your own discovery. I do that a lot. Yeah. Um, mostly cause that's what I know how to do. I don't know how to talk about real life, but I definitely know how to talk about studying texts. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so that's why I started this podcast. Right. Uh, but, um, that's part of that. I like doing, uh, so bringing people into the interpretive process and that kind of aha moments of discovery that I often do. Yeah. Um, but what it is I'm trying to discover is the central big idea, right? So there's kind of a yeah. deductive logic underneath yeah. a, maybe an inductive or narrative form. Is this making sense or am I just way off into la la land? No, you're absolutely right. And, and that's that- gotta be why I have a hard time with parables. Yes. One main idea. <laughs> yes. That's right. Okay. What what you're doing is you're inductively arriving at a deductive point. Yes. And that's fine because we all blend these models. Yeah. And I would say what I attempt to do is to oh, deductively use a point, but then inductively invite my congregation into the process of the meaning making shaping for them. And in that way, like I, I'm very big on the fact that parables were meant to twist they're meant to yeah not no, trick, but twist yeah and so what i want to do is recreate that twist sermonically for them oh that's really good yeah because i mean i am so drawn to verse 14 right i've even said this and for the more deductive among our listeners oh dude i should just pause and just say we're gonna have a bunch of listeners we're gonna flip and love this episode because they want to think about the meta principles of how to preach in general. And we're going to have a bunch who are going to be really frustrated that we yeah. didn't. Move. That's okay. <laughs> I, I also okay. feel like, I also feel like I was way too blabby in this section. I'm sorry. I wish we could. Oh, I loved it. it. I oh. loved it. No, this is why I have guests. So we get different things. Do you know what I mean? No, I was trying to say, we were going to have some listeners who are going to really like thinking more strategically. That's what we're doing right now. We're asking yeah. what's my overall strategy as a preacher with parables in general and with this, but I can, I can apply it to this case because I have said, and this actually, I'll stand by this. I think it's an okay thing to say, but I'm recognizing the one-sidedness of it in approach. Yeah. I have, I've said before that this is the Pauline doctrine of justification by faith in narrative form, Mm. right? You can almost picture Luke Mm. and you can do this inductively picture Luke traveling with Paul, hearing his sermons, reading his letters and being like, yeah, but you're going over their heads, guy. Um, as Peter points out when he says, you know, some of Paul's letters are hard to read, right? It's not like, it's not just yeah. us. It's not just historical distance. Paul was, I think, known as a kind of somewhat confusing person at his own time. There's a historical evidence of that. And to picture someone like Luke, who's such a great communicator, yeah. spending years really wondering how to get this stuff across to the common people, to the poor. He's this wealthy, well-educated person who's really had a movement of solidarity to the poor. Uh, Luke has. So is Paul in his own way, but Luke definitely. It was a farther drop. Luke clearly has the best training of any of the writers. And you can almost see him like hearing this parable one day and saying, that's it. This is what Paul's been trying to say. I mean, it even yeah. has the literal words, faith, fides, it's, it's the pistis in nine and justification in 14. Yep. So the framing device from Luke is basically to say, look, this is it. This is what we're trying to say, you know? Yeah. Um, but notice that's definitely me. That's a very deductive strategy. Um, at least in terms of the logic is to say, this has one big idea, namely the doctrine of justification by faith. Although if you're in a congregation who either has heard that doctrine a gajillion times and needs to hear it fresh or vice versa, uh, congregations where that's a very foreign doctrine to them. Yeah. This is a great way to introduce it. So I absolutely agree with you. And what I love about your justification by faith is how the parable ends. It doesn't say, and a tax collector left and changed his life and stopped (laughs) his tax collecting. No, it just says he went to his home justified. We don't know what happens to him after this. Mm -hmm. 
it is justification by faith. Yeah, and, and justification by faith, properly speaking, is a homiletical principle. It's we don't know what happens the rest of his life because it's not about him. It's about you, dear listener. Absolutely. How are you going to now respond to the gospel having encountered it? You know? Yeah, absolutely. But and what I think it also does is is that then speaks into the people who may have a more pharisaical attitude in the congregation where they're questioning other people's salvations or when they come to faith or mm-hmm. They're, they're really wanting to build up their own process of sanctification rather than just remembering that all of this is a gift from God and that we're blessed to be in whatever part of the journey that we're on. And ultimately, it's not our own work, but God's work in us that matters. Oh, man, that's so good. Which all comes back to what you said, that this can also just be a sermon on prayer, right? The posture the posture of prayer, which fits a theme that's been in some recent and some upcoming podcasts as well. Just the root. What's the, what's the posture of prayer? Is it receiving or is it trying to manipulate and get what one wants? Well, that's like three or four different sermon starters accompanied with uh, meta homiletical theoretics that I just absolutely loved. And I know that some of our listeners will as well. I won't say all, uh, but (laughs) They never all do, you know, there's, there's always like a few that are kind of like, huh? you know? uh, and that's okay. We cast the seed widely and some weeks connect with some, some with others. And anyway, and that's itself a principle of preaching that not every sermon's going to connect with everybody at the same depth and that's okay. So <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, man. Well, thank you so much for giving an hour of your time uh, with me and to our listeners. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah. Well, this will drop in a couple weeks. Do you have anything to plug anything coming out that people might want to know about? I, I don't want to, put you on the spot, but except I just did um, like things you're writing or publishing or speaking or anything like that. Nothing like that. I'm a part of the new Wesleyan church plant in Boston. So we right. certainly would covet your prayers on that. We just launched earlier this month. We had our fourth Sunday, our fourth Sunday we celebrated. So please continue wow. to pray. If you're ever in, in the city, we've learned that people vacation here. So if you need a church yeah. while you're here, come on by. Yeah, what's the name of the church? It's called Awaken City Church. Awaken, you said, or The Awaken? Awaken. Awaken. Okay, great, great, great. So Awaken City Church, Wesleyan Church Plant in Boston. Um, come check it out if you're in town, and whether you're in town or not, be praying for that uh, that new church plant uh, in that city. So thank you so much, Scott, for your time. Appreciate it a lot. I'll just say a quick thank you to uh, Eric and to Todd for their great production work. Thank you to Tom Adamson for donating the theme music, and thank you, as always, to our listeners Uh, for uh, sharing and subscribing and rating and reviewing uh, and getting the word out for this podcast. We hope that it's continuing to be a blessing for you. And with that said, we say, have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks so much.